0: Around Comics, Episode 12.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of Around Comics, where every week we assemble a new panel to discuss topics in and around the world of comics. I'm your host, Christopher Neesman, and I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime and the producer of the show, Brian Salazar. Howdy. Our first guest is a regular contributor at Around Comics. He is our resident DC fan, Tom Caters. Hello, everyone. And our last guest today is the host of the Pop Cult Online podcast. He is Rick Gordon. Hello. Gentlemen, thank you for being on the show, and welcome to Around Comics. Today we are talking about the three most important words in real estate, location, location, location. Longtime fans understand the importance of locations in comics. In real life, we are often products of our environment, and the same can be said about comics. Taking it a step further, the locations of comics can be products of the characters that inhabit them. Now, Marvel and DC have approached locations in very different ways. It is one of the major differences between the two universes. While Marvel is set mostly in the New York area, New York City in particular, the DC universe is made up largely of fictional cities. We'll start our discussion with our resident DC fan today. Tom, why are the locations of the DC universe important to you as a reader?
2: Uh, I feel that one of the real great things that DC has done when let writers really sink their teeth into the cities, is that they can make the city whatever they want it to be. Uh, Places like Gotham, Metropolis, Keystone, all these cities where these major characters live, all, all have feelings of their own that change from writer to writer. And while sometimes that might bother fans that the city isn't always consistent, it's interesting to see different writers have different takes on what a city is like.
1: Well, do you feel that the cities in the DC universe have almost become like secondary characters? I mean, Gotham, in particular, in my opinion, has its own personality and feel.
2: Oh yeah, it's uh, it is almost immediately recognizable in a story that, I mean, even to non-comic book fans, if you tell someone what Metropolis is, they know that's where Superman lives. They may not know that Metropolis is supposed to be this sort of shiny, protected city of Superman, but they're fictional, but they have a growing place, I think, in popular culture, like Gotham and Metropolis especially.
1: Now, uh, Rick, you've uh, you've probably been reading comics longer than, than any of the other three here. How have you seen the, the growth of the locations in the DC Universe in your time as a reader?
3: Well, starting as a Marvel reader and staying pretty much as a Marvel reader, I really haven't paid a lot of attention to the location. They were just kind of there in the background, whereas with the Marvel stories... There was a commonality that I could really relate to because the heroes were going places and doing things that I could relate to on a personal level. Uh, There was a Spider-Man story where he fought the Punisher on the Roosevelt Island tram. Not two weeks later, I was driving down the FDR drive with my parents, and I actually saw it. And it just, you know, when you're 11, that's probably the most thrilling thing. So I was actually looking around to see if Spider-Man would show up. Knowing full well he wouldn 't, but it was just the thrill of looking
1: well that 's something I was going to ask you is you grew up in in the New York area in, in yeah. White Plains, which you know very close to to New York City. How exciting was it for you having all of these locations within New York that you know, in the comic pages, Spider-Man is, is swinging by on a web line or the Avengers mansion is, is somewhere in this. I mean, did you ever catch yourself trying to find the Baxter building?
3: Constantly. Constantly. <laughs> and it was, it was quite the struggle because you try to explain to your parents, well, we have to go down Fifth Avenue. I want to see if the, the mansion is actually there. And they look at you like you're crazy and keep going. But it was, it was a lot of fun was a lot of fun, and I don't think it's as fun nowadays. I think there's less emphasis on the city as a character itself. It's turning more and more into background, because I think more and more of the artists are not from that area. Well, that was a, a point that I was going to get to a little bit later, and, and
1: I'll throw this one uh, over to Sal. Uh, the accuracy of locations. I mean, with the internet today, there are more photo references than you can shake a stick at. And I, I can tell, especially in any comics that are set in the Chicago area, that if there's been a certain amount of research done in that, I appreciate it. Whenever you look at a city scene and it is not indicative
0: of what that city is like, does that bother you? Sal? Personally, no... Yeah, I don't pay that much attention to the backgrounds unless they're integral to the story. To say, you know, this is inaccurate or this bothers me—that kind of thing—it's not something that I pay attention to personally. Um, To me, the city should be background, and that's all it should be. Uh, It could, you know, really matter less to me than anything.
1: I know uh, a particular case as far as Chicago goes was in Brian Azzarello's first arc in a hundred bullets, and there were scenes that were taken directly out of of certain locations in Chicago, and I thought that was that was really you know very accurate, and that showed me that they were very serious about making that an accurate story. So I enjoyed that. Um, Now, in the Marvel Universe, they are largely located in Manhattan. And one interesting thing I've always noticed is that from the get-go, the X-Men were in New York, but not in New York City. They were removed from the the central area where all the other heroes were. Um, Rick, you've read Mm -hmm. X-Men. Why do you think they did that?
3: The X-Men were always different. Than your average superhero, your average superhero could take off a costume and blend right in they couldn't uh, for the most part, so they had to be somewhere somewhat secluded, away separate and I think that that's about the character of the x men they look human, but they're not they're extra they're they're different, and to just stick them in Manhattan. You would lose much of the character of the group.
1: I, I think it was very key that from the beginning they were they were isolated, they were separate, they were you know outcast even in the hero community, and that was a way that Marvel used location to to kind of drive that home. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll jump back over to the DC universe. Uh, I think everyone that listens to the show regularly knows that Tom is a big Flash fan. Tom, how important is it to you that Flash has his own city to 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 patrol?
2: I think it really makes the character, in a way. Because for a while, after um, Crisis on Infinite Earths, <coughs> they actually had the, the Flash live in New York City, and there was just something off about that, because they kind of did that with Green Lantern when they had the Kyle Rayner take over. And there's just something missing from that, in a way, because... For years and years and years, The Flash was always, you know, either Keystone City or Central City, depending on whether it was the Golden Age or Silver Age. And then as they slowly moved him back into that city, they were able to bring all this stuff back that I think they were afraid of using, like The Flash Museum and all these sort of things that I think people thought were hokey at some point. And they were like, well, no, we'll just move him to New York. you know. We'll you can forget that there's a city that has a Flash Museum and all that. And then as the last like couple of years where Jeff Johns has really made Keystone uh, a really important part of the Flash stories.
1: Well, I, I think in, in D.C. that giving each hero, for the most part, giving them their own city has allowed them to develop the the rogues gallery. Now, you know, we see rogues galleries in the Marvel Universe, but in DC, having them in one city has really added to that. I mean, that's their territory.
2: Yeah, and I think it's also interesting because uh, listening to Rick talk about how having the story set in New York made it more tangible to him. Well, to me, I grew up in Green Bay, and there's nothing at all that I could grasp about New York when I was like 8, <laughs> I lived in Green Bay, you know, Keystone City or Central City was a hell of a lot more like the suburb area I grew up in than New York was. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's not, a, a, you know, a bad thing about those stories, it's just my, you know, I wasn't able to get the same sort of feeling of like, oh, you know, the Flash lived in the suburbs, like, where I live, <laughs> you know, which is kind of, you know, just sort of a other side of the coin from Rick's experience.
3: Well, I've always wondered if that was a conscious effort on the two companies. You know, did some did some meeting take place where somebody said, okay, Marvel is doing real cities. We should never do a real city.
2: Yeah,
3: I don't know because it goes back all the
2: way to like the golden age, you know, when the original human torch fought Namor. They like really destroyed New York. But I have a hard time imagining that back then, they planned that so well, you know, like, it just seemed like, not that they never did any business plans, but I would have a hard time imagining that they would think, for the next 50 years, we need to set out how
3: we're going to divide up our cities. But it well, added- you can't, you no, can't but- imagine that at some point, you know, they're on a golf course smoking big cigars oh, yeah. just casually <laughs> discussing... You, know, you, you guys have the rest of
2: the United States you'll right. have
3: New York. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I think
0: it might be more realistic to think that, the, the, you know, the people coming up with these characters were looking for anything to separate themselves. Because if you imagine at the time, everyone and their sister were trying to come up with superheroes. It was extremely hot, popular, and everyone wanted their own superhero. But, you, you know, you're, you're trying to compete for the same amount of landscape. So, you're... You know, your guy that swims underwater, you know, in the Atlantic Ocean, you know, is different than their guy that swims underwater in, you know, Atlantis. Or or your, you know, your speedster in, you know, in in his city. So it may have just been a natural progression of trying to separate in any way from, from the other characters yeah, that are yeah. coming up, popping up, you know, minute by minute, literally.
3: Yeah, because you don't want an eight-year-old, you know, who's whose hero, you know, lives and works in Manhattan, wondering, hey, why doesn't he run into Batman, or why doesn't he run into this one, that one, from another company? Well, uh, yeah, items? I
0: mean, and, and there are probably legal issues to some degree also. I mean, there, there's, there's, you know, legendary historic battles of, of legal issues between companies, you know, uh, going back to Superman starting it all off and and everyone basically ripping that character off so once again it may have just been uh, trying to separate yourself in any way possible and I've
2: been to Northwest Indiana and there's no place like Fawcett City in Northwest Indiana which is where it's supposed to be yeah, anyone in Chicago's
1: been to Gary? I haven't seen no the city. Yeah, they could Captain use a superhero Lafayette. or two there, though. <laughs> yes, they, they could, you know. And that's the thing about the universe. And this is coming from an old Marvel zombie. You know, if I'm a if I'm a supervillain, I'm getting out of New York. I'm going to Philadelphia to knock off a bank. There's, I, I Tom said it whenever we were talking earlier. You can't swing a cat in New York without hitting a superhero. And yeah, I I think that's neat that that Marvel. As their universe sets there, but in you know, in a geeky, realistic way, it makes more sense to have all of these different cities around the country and around the world where these superheroes were. If, if in real life they did exist, they're not all going to live in New York. And it, and it's yeah, but you've got to
3: look at it the other way also, because in the beginning, when I first jumped in, I jumped into Marvel at like 69, 70, and it was very continuity-driven and that's the one thing that pulled me in that made me collect Marvel as opposed to DC, which I read, but I didn't chase after it. Uh, with the with the Marvel continuity, I knew if I read long enough, Spider-Man, you know, he lives in Greenwich Village and works in that area, and I know that Daredevil is in Hell's Kitchen, and I know that at some point these two are going to meet, and it's going to make sense because they're trapped on this island, basically, so th- these, these characters are going to meet and intermingle, and I just didn't get that feeling with the DCU, although when the Justice League got together, it just seemed very forced, like a, like an arranged marriage. It, it was something just off with it. That's so the Gardner-Fox school of characterization. <laughs> 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 well,
1: I, I think you, you look at the early Marvel years, and that's how they introduced a lot of characters or, or launched off. You know, titles. Who who were the guest stars in Amazing Spider-Man number one? It was the Fantastic Four. Why? Well, they lived in New York. And, and I think you know you can you can go both ways with it. I think at that time it did help Marvel continuity because it was a great way to introduce characters. But I think in today's comic world, I think that the way that DC has it set up sets them up with if not a better continuity and an easier way to justify things. In Marvel right now, if the Hulk goes on a, you know, forty block rampage through Manhattan and destroys half the city, well, you pick up in Fantastic Four and they're in the same part of the city and nothing's wrong. Where right. in D C if, you know, Gotham, which is kind of the The redheaded stepchild of the DCU, as far as like natural disasters and whatnot, they can destroy that every couple years and it fits into continuity just fine.
2: Well, Mm -hmm. I also like um, one of the strengths to why a lot of the city locations in DC really pulls me to it is that, and this has never been true until the modern age, uh, is the fact that the variety of places and the effort to really separate you know, Coast City is different from Keystone, which is different from Opal City, which is different from Fawcett City, and a conscious effort to make sure you know this city is like this. This is what... Keystone's a blue-collar city. Coast City is like like a, well, a destroyed city when it <laughs> was wrecked, but before that, it was like a typical California city, and Gotham's a hellhole, and Metropolis is shiny, well, doesn't that, I mean,
0: that kind of, I mean, I have two problems with with the, the made-up cities in DCU, and not that there are big problems, it doesn't bother me, but one is the dumbass names. I mean, who's naming these cities? Who are the, you know, the people coming up with Fawcett City and Coast City? Those are some stupid names, but... Other than that, I mean the sort of the cliche-ness of those I mean Gotham is dark and you know foreboding and basically a toxic. giant ghetto and and Metropolis is shiny and new and the you know the city of the future and Fawcett City is Gary dumb named city. I don't know what that one is. But but, but I mean aren't they to this point they've become almost uh, you've talked about them becoming their own characters but have those characters been sort of uh, overdone to this point where it's like, okay, this is what they are and and the, not necessarily interesting any longer. Well, or do they allow themselves to be... I mean, Bloodhaven, you know, is like mini-Gotham, you know, and and, and it, they just can't kind of create these things to to do what they want to do with it, let alone, you know... And
2: well, I don't think that a cliched city is a bad thing because if you're a good writer and you go in and you have the image of Gotham is supposed to be like this. You can play against that, you know. I mean, there are writers that go in and write a city and write it really poorly, and uh, you know, there's never any variety within that city. I'm read more more of the Flash than anything, so I'm gonna be a total Flash whore and mention like the whole Keystone Central City. But like making Keystone, yeah, it's a blue collar city, but it's not just pictures of, you know, guys working on trucks constantly. I mean, they brought up stuff with, like, union, you know, labor unions, and they brought up things with, like, prisons and, you know, prison violence and, like, this whole sort of tone. I mean, I think it differs from writer to writer just as much as different writers at Marvel have different levels of success of making New York be compelling. I mean, it's not an automatic for Marvel to, you know, make New York interesting. Hi, I'm Phil Hester, artist of Ant-Man. I love listening to Around
1: Comics, and so should you. Back to Marvel. Um, Rick, every time that Marvel seems to have tried to launch a series outside of New York, it's not met with great success. I know that you know there were the West Coast Avengers and Cloak and & Dagger were based in, in L.A., do you see Marvel as being able to get outside of New York and still work?
3: Hmm. No.
1: <laughs> you, you think
3: Marvel, that's New York is Marvel? New York is definitely Marvel. The Marvel U and New York are linked forever. Uh, you can spin it off a little bit. I mean, Daredevil was out in San Francisco for a while. Yeah, that, that, that worked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's you weird. Know, you had the, the Champions. I mean, another fail project. It's just... Mm. New York is Marvel. Yeah, you know, the, the comic industry started in New York, and it will die there, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> well, you do have The Runaways, which is, is based out in California. That's true. And that's, you know, been somewhat successful. But I think, you know, the point is that it, it is so ingrained... With Manhattan and New York City, that uh, it, it would be extremely difficult for them to ever sort of branch out from that. But some of my favorite stories were always like Hulk stuff when he's out in the desert, you know, in the middle of nowhere, just you know, fighting tanks and stuff, where where New York wasn't involved. And I think you know a lot of times they had to do that just so, once again, the continuity wasn't you know so screwed up when the Hulk tore down the Empire State Building. <laughs> well,
2: they should have given Hulk
0: Desert City then. Sand City, maybe.
2: Well,
1: some of my favorite Avengers stories were... I mean, we're talking about, you know, quote-unquote Earth's Mightiest Heroes and for the longest time they were running around Manhattan and they were, they were New York's mightiest heroes. But my favorite Avengers stories were whenever they would take them out of New York and they would be out saving the world. And um, right before uh, uh, Bendis hopped on with Avengers Disassembled, there was a great story that took place in South Dakota and it was one of, one of the best Avengers stories I had read in years. So I, I like it whenever they get them out of New York.
3: Yeah, but you always want them to hop in the Quinjet and go back home to Fifth Avenue. You know, go out in the space, you know, play around with Moondragon, whatever, but you always have to have a a home to come home to. (laughs)
1: Um, On DC, that was one thing that with the JLA their base was either the moon or the satellite and always thought it was interesting that with all of the cities in the DC universe that their <laughs> headquarters always had to be off-planet
2: or in a cave
1: they were in a cave for a
2: while <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah it's, it's their first headquarters was in a cave where they used to have snapper Kai. but I mean I think that was definitely a conscious choice on their part like not to... I mean back in the day Rick's right. Like when Green Lantern teams up with Flash, it's <laughs> it's like two parents making a play date for their kids <laughs> who don't like each other. You know, like they're just shoved <laughs> into the same book. So I mean, it was probably definitely very much an effort not. You can't put the JLA in Metropolis, or otherwise you got to do a war, you know with all that type of stuff. But uh, I was kind of like the moon thing now. I think that was sort of an interesting.
1: The moon idea. Base. Yeah. I
2: mean, it's just, it was done basically out of utility, I think, for that. Just so I wouldn't interfere with other stuff going on.
1: Well, I, th- I think Rick uh, made a point of whenever there was, you know, quote-unquote, a, a team-up in the DC universe, it was very forced. It's like, okay, what is Flash doing out of Keystone City? And he'd you know, be like, oh, I just wanted to you know, go for a jog, and so I'm in Coast City now. Oh, and there are these people robbing this <laughs> oh, bank.
2: Oh, Solomon Grundy's here. Yes. All right, you and me, we'll team up.
3: <laughs> yeah, Adam riding on his shoulder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the team-ups were very bad back in the day, Never very forced. Yeah, I'd be real intimidated if I was a bank robber and I saw a black canary and elongated man coming after me, exactly. I wouldn't know what I would laugh and drop my money back <laughs> and just start shooting. Elongated man
2: hanging out in Keystone or Central Dynamic, but so
1: what, what Tom, what are what what's the lineup of of DC Cities and, and what, what heroes are associated uh, with them?
2: Well you got well, you know, you got Metropolis, Gotham. Coast City is Green Lantern, which I think they rebuilt, and then you got Opal City for Starman, and you have Saint Roche or Roche um, for Hawkman. And you have Fawcett City for the Marvel family, and uh, those are the ones I just reeled off the top of my head. And Keystone for Flash. Keystone and Central for flash Flash. Uh, those are like the major. Well, Star City for Green Arrow.
3: So there, are there any DC cities, DC's, how are are these cities any really <laughs> in the real world? Is Keystone City? Is it? It's in you know, Kansas is it Chicago? City. Is it Minneapolis? What? You know, how does uh, it work?
2: Keystone and Central City are supposed to be like Kansas City, like Missouri and Kansas. Type. Mm-hmm. Like there's a bridge between the two of them.
1: No, I never did understand where Metropolis was. You know, you watch like if you, New Jersey or something like well, that. Well, yeah, right? but if you know, you, you watch Smallville, it's it's in Kansas and it, you know, I was like, okay, yeah. is Metropolis Kansas City because that's a a real interesting place for Superman to be.
2: It's already it's already Central City.
0: You can't do that. <laughs> uh, I, I think Latropolis Metropolis was just supposed to be a, you know, a New York just not in New York, I guess. <laughs> Uh, you look And then, uh, what, there's
1: Sub-Diego now, which was San Diego. Oh,
2: yeah. San Diego sunk. Uh,
1: and then, wh- when did Bloodhaven come <laughs> around?
2: You know, Jeff, I love D.C., and <laughs> Bloodhaven sucks. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's gone now
0: anyway, but, well. <laughs> yeah, I
2: guess. It's just like, so you have, you know, one hellhole, and then, like, 20 miles away, you have all of a sudden a new hellhole that's like... <laughs> even worse <laughs> but yeah that's, that's kind of silly I
1: mean is Bloodhaven a new city is it like you know what four or five years old was it you know was it basically created for Nightwing I
2: think it was created for Nightwing I think it's older than four or five years old but it's I mean, New Gotham it's kinda, <laughs> yeah the older one is so nice that people want it
0: expands <laughs> expand. <laughs> Yeah, There, there was too
1: much crime in Gotham, so all the criminals, you know, split up and moved to to Bloodhaven. Yeah.
2: or you get a lot of the sort of everything becomes sort of gothamy, like uh, Star City. I mean, a bit more gothamy all the time, uh, the crime and all that. The like, writers do a pretty good job with that one of not making it Gotham light.
0: Hey, how about Sin City? Hey, you know, if, if we're talking
1: about locations, that is that is one that we don't have to talk about just Marvel and DC. You know, tell me another city that has more personality
0: and character and operates as a secondary character more than Sin Cities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's you know, there's hardly anything that. I mean, that, that is what that book is about. It's not, not any of the characters. It is that city and what it has turned those people into and what they're forced to become and, and the way that city just, you know, talk about taking Gotham to the next level or, you know, just an absolutely ridiculous level. There's there's no city that is as much a character as, as Sin City is. Rick, have you ever, ever, ever been a Sin City fan?
3: Uh, not really. I came into it late with the movie. I remember seeing it on the stands and just I was just burnt out on Frank Miller at the time, so
1: it it is it is Frank Miller kinda like boiled down to his essence. And mm-hmm. and it's Sin City is actually basin city and it's got its whole, you know, political structure and, you know, the different neighborhoods and it breaks those down and it it is its own world. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, another uh, another indie book that I wanted to talk about was Brian Wood's Local. Uh, Sal and I were joking around this week that we have to have our weekly Brian Wood appreciation
0: moment. Uh, Sal, you, you've read Local. Uh, how do you like it? Well, I, I'm enjoying it. it. It's a different type of book, obviously, which most of the stuff that Brian Wood does is different than than anything else, and that's what I enjoy about it. Um, local is basically him taking one location and in, in, so far it's only been in the United States generally it's a small town I, I think he did uh, Minneapolis uh, was it St. Paul I think he, he started out in Portland Portland, then uh,
1: Minneapolis then uh, Richmond, Virginia and then the last one was was it
0: Missoula, Montana yeah so not necessarily small towns but smaller cities and um, and you know, picks out some interesting characters from that, or going through that, or coming to that city, and and tells their tale. And and he's done, you know, a lot of research. Uh, I know if you if you go on his web blog or you read the the letters pages in that book, he's very meticulous about the uh, the artwork and and the locations and getting the right research material and he's actually had people you know sending him in locations and pictures and you know of the areas that they're they're centering the story around so it's an interesting take on a book because it you know it, it it's it's non sequential it's it doesn't really um from one issue to the next there doesn't seem to be anything linking them other than you know the the basic concept. Uh, but oh, so the, the, far, the Megan
1: McKee character is, is a constant, but she is you know, not a major character in
0: every issue. right? So. And so um, It's, it's going to be interesting to see where he takes it. I know he does plan on taking it out of just the United States and taking it to other countries, so that should be interesting too. But, um, you know, talk about using location. It, it certainly is all about uh, that book. I
1: think he saw that you know, the same thing a lot of other comic fans see is that you can take things out of New York, you can take it out of L.A. or whatever major city, and there are amazing stories to be told just by using locations, just by going around the country and finding things. You know, Richmond, Virginia, there's interesting things that happen there. So Local is uh, is a book that uh, that I'm
0: really enjoying. And around. really, if you wanted, you wanted to talk about, I mean, DMZ is sort of using a location in a different way. Way to get a point across. Uh, what DMZ is his other, one of his other Brian Wood's other books, and it's basically a you know a, a military action in you know New York, and uh, a main the main character is in this demilitarized zone in in between uh, Manhattan, and uh, using that location to you know to talk about something. That is going on in other parts of the world, you know, to try and strike home, you know, close to home. So that's another uh, a book that is, the location is extremely important. Yeah, Tom,
1: I know that you've read DMZ. How do you like it?
2: Oh, I think it's awesome. But I also think it's a really interesting take on the idea of a location because it's playing off of what you think New York should be like instead of his goal is to show you. New York his goal is to show you what New York could be like or what our lives could be like which i I think when a good writer gets into it it takes as much effort to research that or to think about that than it does to show you what a city's really like because I mean it's still New York but it's not quite the New York that you would see you know if you went there but it's I mean it's a great use of location it plays mm. off of that.
1: Uh, Rick, have you read any of uh, either local or DMZ? I know that you're mostly mainstream, but I know that you'll uh, dip your toe in the independent pool from time to
3: time. I actually have local on the to-read pile. I just mm. haven't actually gotten to it yet, but it's it's coming up quick.
1: It it is it is good stuff. So on your I, recommendation, by the <laughs> way, nice that I. That, that'll wrap up our Brian Wood appreciation
2: moment for the week. Yeah, Are you guys getting the check soon?
1: Oh. Brian
0: Wood send all proceeds to Around Comics. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Wood portion's
2: over
1: now. Yeah, in, in between Brian Wood and, and Greg Rucca, I think we're, uh, we're, we're going overboard. book so.
2: taking place in a supermarket.
1: Location. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> well, guys, let's... Uh, Let's get some final thoughts here on the importance of locations in comics. Uh, Thomas, why don't you go?
2: Uh, I think location, when it's used properly, it's like almost adding ten extra pages to a story you're reading. If someone can make a city come alive for you, it makes so much more depth to what's going on in the story. You can write great stories that don't necessarily... And have to be these great location masterpieces. But when someone really nails it like right on the head, it, it can really make a character or a story come alive. And that's true no matter what company you're reading. When someone
3: does it well, it works fantastically.
1: Alright, native New Yorker,
3: uh,
1: Rick, go for it.
3: I think location was important years ago when the business was less competitive. But I think it's less important now that it's more global. And I I hate to sound cliche with that, but more and more artists are working from their homes, wherever that may be. They're not in studios and bullpens, all congested in New York. So it was just a natural progression. It has to, the world has to start becoming more and more open and the artist's view of the world, which is not necessarily going to be Manhattan anymore. So... It, I don't think it's as important anymore as it as it used to be
0: all right sal well I, I think it's a it's a tool uh, like many other things I think depending on the writer they can use it to the benefit of their story if they so choose but it's not something that i n- necessarily think is important to every story uh, to certain characters I think there is i mean you can certainly take Superman out of Metropolis for a story or two but Eventually, he's going to have to return there. And, and you know, the same with Spider Man or Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen and, and all these characters. But you can write very compelling stories that have very little to do with the surroundings of the character. Um, and it's been done, you know. So it, it depends on, on what try, type of story you're trying to tell, whether or not the background, the, you know, the location is important. It certainly can be done well, but I don't know, necessarily think it has to be.
1: Well, I, uh, I agree with all of you guys and, and all your points. It's, uh, locations are important. I think it's left up to the writer. If it's done right, it can definitely add to the story. You can write stories based solely on location and just how the characters interact with it. Um, but whenever it comes down to it, it really is what the characters do. how it's written and like Sal said it is a tool but if it's used correctly it's a very powerful tool in comics Um, That'll wrap up our topic discussion for the week. I do have uh, one clarification from last week's show. We had talked about uh, Roy Thomas' return to Red Sonja, and David Price went out and dug up some information for us, so I wanted to pass this along. He uh, wrote us and said, Roy Thomas did indeed script the 15-issue Marvel series that began in 1977. Most of the issues had Claire Noto credited as... uh, Uh, scripting with Thomas and her plotting uh, on the last two issues with Thomas writing them. So uh, uh, all the Roy Thomas fans can stop being mad at us for not knowing (laughs) his his run on Red Sonja. Um, I believe that means it is time for Wire to Wire comic news. These are your top headlines for the week of April 3rd, 2006. Power & Glory, option for the big screen. Another day, another option. This time it's Power & Glory, Howard Chaikin's superhero tale from all the way back in his Malibu days. New Line Cinema has bought the rights and Chris Bender and J.C. Spink are set to produce the film. Chaikin's story centers on a crime fighter who's genetically engineered to be a superhero, but fears using his powers and needs to be teamed with a former CIA agent. Power and Glory was first produced as a Malibu comic series in the 1990s. Gordon Lee Trial Underway. Gordon Lee's case first came to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund early in 2005 following his arrest for accidentally distributing Alternative Comics No. 2, a free comic book day addition to a minor. The comic book at issue included a segment from Nick Bertuzzi's upcoming graphic novel The Salon, depicting Georges Brock's first meeting with Pablo Picasso, in which Picasso is shown painting in the nude. The comic depicted no sexual situation. Lee offered an apology for accidentally handing out the comic, which was one book out of thousands he gave away during a Halloween promotion. He instead found himself facing a hefty set of charges. To date, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund has spent over $40,000 in defense of Gordon Lee. Listen to Around Comics as we follow the Gordon Lee trial. Cyber Force number 1 sells out. The original Top Cow production title is back, revamped and reimagined under the creative care of writer Ron Mars and artist Pat Lee. The new Cyber Force No. 1 hits stores on March 22nd with covers by Pat Lee, David Finch, and Mark Silvestri. Top Cow will closely monitor the market and retailer demand to determine if a second printing is forthcoming. Cyber Force number 2 will be in stores on April 19th. Think there's nothing new under the sun in the world of comics? Well, one new studio plans to challenge that mindset. Visionary Comics Studio is proud to announce its public debut. VCS is not the typical comic book studio. It's actually something pretty radically different, said C. Edward Sellner, creative director for The Fledgling Outfit. It's a teaching studio. We're not a school. We're a working studio that hones the skills of aspiring professionals to get their work to the level that it can stand on its own next to any comic book on the racks. To learn more about Visionary Comics Studio, check them out on the web at www.visionarycomics.com. Remender is Dynamite. Shortly after Dynamite Entertainment announced its agreement with Universal Studios Consumer Products Group to produce comics based on the classic Battlestar Galactica series, the company has announced that creator Rick Remender will write the opening arc as well as the ongoing series. Remender, an award-winning comic book writer, penciler, and inkler, as well as a feature film animator, pitched the ideas to Dynamite for the series launch. Remender seems excited about the project, saying that, Given the recent rebirth of the franchise, it's a real honor to be entrusted with the untold tales of the original Battlestar Galactica. Like every blue-blooded kid in America in the late 70s, I was a big fan. I've been working hard at translating that childhood enthusiasm into what I hope will be seen as a powerful and imaginative story told with a fresh voice while staying true to the original tone. Devil's Due is set for the release of a new three-part miniseries, G.I. Joe Declassified. The writer that started it all, Larry Hama, returns to the fold this June to tell the unbelievable story of how the G.I. Joe team became the elite fighting force that they are today. Get the untold stories of the very beginning of the G.I. Joe saga in this 48-page, three-issue, bi-monthly series, illustrated by up-and-coming artist Pat Quinn. Ultimate Fantastic Four number 30 kicks off Frightful, which will not only feature the return of Doctor Doom, but also the debut of the Ultimate Frightful Four. Everything has been building towards this three-issue arc that puts the Ultimate Fantastic Four through their toughest test yet. It also marks the end of Mark Miller and Greg Land's year-long run on the title. Marvel Comics has tapped prolific author and veteran comic book writer Peter David to script the first seven issues of the groundbreaking new comic book series adapted from Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. The first issue is scheduled to debut in February 2007. These have been your top headlines for the week of April 3rd, 2006. For the full version of these and other stories, please go to AroundComics.com. Your source for the best in comics, news, reviews, and opinions. Alright, and that's your news for the week. Uh, we'll start at the top here. Power and Glory has been optioned for a film. Uh, Power and Glory is a Howard Shaken work. Uh, Sal, I know that you are a chicken fan. Did you ever read Power and Glory?
0: I did read Power and Glory, uh... Years ago, um, it should be interesting to see interesting what they do with it. I mean, Chankin's stuff could easily translate into film. I think his style of writing and art is very cinematic. Um, it will be interesting to see if you know what kind of rating they go for. If they they try and go for a, a PG-13 or a PG rating, it, it it may suffer some considering Chankin's style and, and more gritty and adult. Uh, humor and, and and situations that he puts in his stuff, but uh, but I'll certainly be on the lookout for it.
1: Absolutely, uh, uh, Rick. Were you a uh, Power and Glory fan or a Howard Shaking oh, fan? Oh
3: yes, I've been a Howard Shaking fan since his Star Wars run. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's pretty much the beginnings.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to see how well he'll translate to the big screen. Like uh, Sal said, he's very cinematic. But uh, let's just wait and see how much gets lost in the translation.
1: Yeah, I know that Sal's been waiting for American Flag to, to get oh, made into you know, an adult, <laughs> adult HBO series. Just starring Charlie Sheen. I think Charlie Sheen would play that character perfectly. <laughs> yeah. well, well, I think, actually... Uh, Howard Shaken is going to be one of the uh uh artist spotlights here in the in the future. Uh moving on, it is the uh, the Gordon Lee trial. Uh anyone that's not heard about this, this is a very big deal in the world of comics. We're actually uh, probably going to dedicate an entire episode to this. Uh Tom, have you been following the Gordon Lee trial?
2: Yeah, I've heard about it, and I don't know how far in the huge rant I want to go, but <laughs> ridiculous the the whole thing is it seems to me like this is just a sort of a symptom of how frightened everyone in America is of anything challenging you know we've been uh, we've been sort of set up to fear like this type of thing happening but what's the worst that could come from a comic book that has a naked you know portrayal of Picasso like what kid He's gonna get that, heat. like, oh no! I'm gonna go buy some heroin, drink. And this is gonna be the best time ever, you know. Like, I don't. I, it's just so weird because I don't get why people are so freaked out. But that's because I'm a crazy liberal. So. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think
0: it's certainly, <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: it's certainly, you know, someone looking to make an example out of them, and okay. and it is you know this certain this specific situation looks obviously ridiculous and crazy but it does you know there are certain instances where things that should have labels on them don't um in this industry and things like this can happen and and, and worse than this I, I know chris we had talked about uh, <laughs> i i'm just joke. thanking
1: god that he hadn't uh passed out the
0: first issue of zombie Game. yeah yeah I mean, that had no label on it whatsoever, and, and you know, the, the second page on it is, is a zombie, you know, sodomizing a cow in the, the moonlight, so, you know, I know there were retailers out there that put that on the shelf with everything else because they they didn't know, it didn't have any kind of labeling on it, didn't, you know, didn't say it was an adult title, and, you know, once you look at it, inside the pages, it obviously was, and, and so, it's a problem, unfortunately. In this instance, you know, this guy is is kind of getting you know screwed because of it. But you know, I don't know what the solution is. Certainly, well, I know
1: that uh, Sal, you have two children, but Rick has uh, two children that are starting to get into the the comic book reading age. So from the uh, from the parent of what, what I know, an eleven year old at least, um, how do you feel about this?
3: Once again, the onus is on the parents. Uh, I think nowadays a lot of parents are just giving up their responsibility, they're you know, placing it on the teachers, to the community, television, video games, anything but themselves. Uh, I posted a picture today of my son reading a comic book he actually was going through a stack of books and I was watching him to make sure he just wasn't grabbing any random book because you just never know. And this problem is is cyclical. It's it's a generational problem. We went through this in the 50s. We went through this in the 70s. We went through it with Friendly Franks in the 80s. Every new generation that comes along, there's got to be a scapegoat Comic books are easy to to become a scapegoat. Yeah,
0: but at the same time, I mean, don't you foresee a time where your son's going to be able to go to the comic shop on his own and you're not going to be there to look at what he purchases?
3: By the time that happens, I think he'll be prepared emotionally, psychologically to handle pretty much everything that's out there. Um, It's a different world. I, 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 I was think kids,
1: I, I, I think was gonna, kids are
3: a little more sophisticated than they were at my age. I, I, mean, I, I, I was Stacy uh, really freaked me out but I got over it Well
1: <laughs> no, it, it, it's it's one of those and I will I will also mention that the, the picture that you posted today you said it was the best birthday present that you could have gotten so uh, happy birthday Rick. Oh thank you. <laughs> uh, are we gonna sing for him? No, no, you're no, not. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about, you know, being emotionally stable enough to handle stuff. I know, Zombie King, I,
0: I wasn't emotionally stable enough to handle that. Yeah, and I mean, a 15-year-old kid walks into a comic book shop and, and buys that off the rack because, it, you know, it doesn't have a label and, and takes it home and, and you know. I, I mean, I agree with you with, with on, on on one side of it that parents can't certainly ignore things and just say, well, you know, it's up to the, the, the publisher or the video game manufacturer or whatever that you, you have to take an, an active, you know, participation in what your kid is doing but to some degree I don't know that Yeah, there's got to be a human
3: element involved you know, the shopkeeper should know what's out there you well, know, just because hey. black kisses in a rapper, you know make sure a kid doesn't open it
0: But, once again, I mean, this, you know, this certain situation, there was no, you know, you expect every comic book owner to read every book page to page that they put on the shelf and know exactly what's in it. That seems uh, unrealistic to me to to expect them to be able to do that. Well, I think
2: Mm. the one thing we need to keep in mind is that in Europe they have been reading comic books for zombies have been sodomizing cows for years and it's just a (laughs) cultural difference that we just haven't gotten over yet you know (laughs) (laughs) we're just a puritan in America
0: well uh, Well, once again you know that's a whole nother issue I know I don't care what Europeans are doing I, I don't want you know I don't want my kid reading that yeah I'm sorry i you know I'm a pretty liberal guy but i you know i'm not I'm not looking for for my kid to get his hands on that before he's you know at least eighteen years old
3: well I, I also look, look at know. it from the perspective of uh I used to work in a comic shop during the height of the the eighties when we had so many new customers coming in you couldn't you couldn't keep track of who was who so you would have these little kids coming in with a stack of books and you Really had to know your product, and, and yes, you did have to almost read every page and know what was going on. Well, because it, let me tell you, when you're working in a comic shop, there is plenty of downtime. There is no reason not to be able to have a a fairly good grasp of what's coming through your doors and what's going out.
1: I can agree, but then you're leaving it up to the shop owner to dictate what is appropriate or not appropriate. And I think that you know, with this stuff going on, I think that we're we are getting closer. And you know, fortunately, unfortunately, to having a standardized um, grading uh, or, or you know rating for comics. I don't know if that's the answer. I don't know you know who's going to set that up, but it's
3: it's it's coming. It's just going to be a reaction. It's going to do as well as the the parental stickers on the on the CDs have. Well, yeah, at least yeah. there's something though.
0: I mean, at least it gives you a chance to know. You know, I mean, I got I got carded today because I bought an adult video game or not, a, but a mature video game. I bought the Godfather <laughs> video game, and at Best Buy, and the girl actually asked for my ID. Now I look well over eighteen, but. She asked for my ID. I didn't have a problem with that and and at least you know as a parent, if my you know my 14 year old kid comes home with that game, I know because it says on there that it's mature. Mm-hmm. I don't have to play it to know what's in it because it's got a label on it. I mean, at least you know Marvel does that. they label their own stuff. it's something i mean it's it's I don't know if it's an answer or a solution, but it's something
3: well, it's just being aware that's all.
0: Right, but at you the know, same time, I mean,
3: y- goes per- so far, and the, the the shopkeeper can only go so far. But you know, it's all part of the bigger picture, I would I guess.
1: Yeah, R- raise your kids well, and uh, we're going to dedicate, uh, I think, an entire episode because there's obviously a, a lot more to talk about there. And uh, yeah, video game my ass, Salazar.
0: Um, yeah. <laughs> <what> the- <laughs> no, no. Uh, video game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quote quote no no it wasn't it was a video game it, it was a mature video game not a <laughs> well let's uh let's move on here um although I do i am looking for my black kiss to be optioned for a porno film. So, I'm waiting on that Howard Schenken property to be optioned.
1: <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, he and Alan Moore can get together. <laughs> Moore's been writing. Uh, Cyberforce number one sells out. Um, any Any takers here?
2: The name is frightening.
1: Damn, I would have bought it, but now that it's sold out...
0: <laughs> we'll never get a copy. will <laughs> never. <laughs>
1: um... Tom and I were talking before the show that uh, he has an idea for doing a... uh you know, from the archives uh, podcast, yeah. it's a uh, you know a group of guys sitting around f- from like 1991 talking about all the cool comics coming out, <laughs> and uh, c- yeah. Cyber Force would would fit right in there.
2: So if anybody starts doing that podcast, I will find you. That's my idea. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Hold on, let me write that down. Yeah, uh-huh. 1991.
2: 1991. <laughs> oh, we need another cable comic book. Like, oh, I can't
3: get enough of him. Look at these
1: guys all gritting all the time. All right, so so, Cyber Force One sells out. Uh, We'll move on. Um,
0: you guys all laugh, but you all have you you all have like four copies of of that comic, you know, with a, a holographic cover in your collection somewhere. I know it.
2: That's why I w- would be so good at doing that. That was how I felt in nineteen
1: ninety one. I'm still for, I'm still looking for the bagged X Force number one with the cable card in it. I've got all the others. I got three of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, visionary comic studio. Uh, uh, an interesting little story. It is a a comic studio that uh, it looks like it's bringing in uh, somewhat amateur talent, setting up the company as a working studio to uh, to get comics out on the shelves. Uh, anyone think good idea to uh, to start up a, a comic studio? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, it's forever, uh, it's right kind of interesting of <laughs> It's an interesting concept
1: Well, it was uh, a pretty a pretty good sized story There was uh, way too much to throw into our news this week But uh, go in, take a look at it Go to uh, AroundComics.com And it was a, a very interesting story As far as trying to, to dent uh, the comic market Um Right there with Cyberforce number one, we have Gojo, uh, Declassified. And it's uh, the untold stories of the G.I. Joe crew.
2: In- interesting. Crickets again. Snake Whoopee! Guy, <laughs> Snake eyes talking,
0: maybe? Ooh, don't spoil it.
2: <laughs> Spoiler warning.
0: <laughs> I, you know, these all these, like, <laughs> licensed properties they you know there's so many of them out there and you know i don't know who's reading gi G. G. joe any longer or now i don't know uh, even stuff that i do like uh, television shows and movies that get licensed for some reason and maybe it's because you know when i was younger there were so many bad ones out there that they just i'm automatically turned off from any of them well we were talking about you know
1: Chankin earlier with Star Wars. How was that? Uh,
0: His Star Wars? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Bad. (laughs) You know, it was... I don't know. I I mean, you just can't compare, you know, a film and then... All right,
3: Well, take it... Go ahead, Rick. Oh, it's a a gateway thing. It's a gateway thing. I got into comic collecting specifically because of the 67 Spider-Man cartoon. If it was not for that cartoon, I would have absolutely no interest in comics. My sons have gotten into it through video games, Sonic the Hedgehog. They bought Sonic Comics, realized that there were other comics out there. It's 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 that gateway theory. There's always going to be some other media that brings you into comics. I doubt there's very many people that go in cold.
0: Yeah, but well, I mean, where are they coming? What are G- there's like a bunch of kids out there buying GI Joe figures and then reading the comics.
3: No, they can. That could Maybe. be. GI Joe is still being produced. Is this still I, a viable toy?
1: I started reading comics because of Doctor Who, and Marvel picked up the, the Doctor Who franchise. You know, but you know, hey, I, ever I, since I, they
0: got rid of the Kung Fu grip, I just can't get into GI Joe any longer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, let, let's segue into a another uh, property here, and that is Battlestar Galactica, and this was exciting for me because Rick Remender was announced that he's going to be the writer on um, its uh, two different Battlestar Galactica's coming out. One on the new Battlestar Galactica series, and one on the classic. And Rick Remender is going to be penning the uh, old classic Battlestar, because it's Remender. I'm going to check it out. So, Tom?
2: I'm, I've never really liked Battlestar Galactica, but I might look at it because it's Rick Remender. But I, I've i got the same thing Sal has with licensed properties, where I don't know what it is. Uh, I just can't. There's some, there's some disconnect in my mind that, like, I think it's, like, the same type of expectation that when you read a book and then you see the cartoon of it or the television version of it, you're just like, oh... That's not the way I imagined it. You know, the same way as you watch something and you want that same feeling you got watching it, reading it. There's just, maybe I'm just not sophisticated enough to enjoy a good Doctor Who comic book.
0: Hey, Cal, watch (laughs) out. That's it. No, I agree. That's exactly (laughs) where I. It's the same thing. It's like I automatically sort of put them to the side. I don't even, you know, I discount them completely. Um,. For whatever reason, I don't know. Yeah, it's the same, there's just sort of this switch in my head that that uh, I have no, you know, like uh, well, there's a story of of the uh, Stephen King stuff. I read the stand. I don't know that I'll read the comics.
1: Well, yeah, uh, I tell you, I'll pick up uh, the remainder Battlestar Galactica if I like it. I'll let you know. If I don't like it, I'll let you know, and, well, and I'll because, throw it your way.
0: Because it is Rick Remender, I may be inclined to steal yours and read them. <laughs> like everything else I own. Pretty much.
2: Rick Remender sent you a smaller check than Brian Wood. Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay, uh, we'll get uh, a little bit more mainstream in our news. Uh, the Ultimate Frightful Four. I, I think the important part of the story is that it's marking the end of the Mark Miller, Greg
2: Land run
1: on Fantastic Four. Did you guys enjoy the run?
2: I've enjoyed it. Ultimate Pace Pot Pete. <laughs> is that going to come out? Is that <laughs> Ultimate Fragment <Pace Pot> <laughs> I, I, I don't think know. there's a plan. I don't think it's a plan. No, I've really enjoyed it. the only Ultimate book that I pick up monthly is Ultimate Fantastic Four. I think it's great.
1: Rick, have you have you read Ultimate Fantastic Four?
3: Actually, no. Um, some scattered issues here and there, but I'm, I'm a huge, huge Spider-Man fan mm-hmm. and an X-Men fan. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm a big fan of X-Men, I just am.
1: There's, yeah, a, there's, there's a light at someone, the
3: end of the tunnel. In a month, well,
1: <laughs> 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 they'll
2: eventually come out with a miniseries called uh, X-Men, Rick Gordon. One miniseries for everybody. Yeah, for every X Men fan, X-Men. you have your own miniseries. <laughs> you have your own, specifically
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Ultimate yes. Fantastic Four is, in my opinion, the best Fantastic Four I've ever read. Now, admittedly, I have not been a Fantastic Four fan for a very long time, probably since John Byrne uh, wrote and drew it. But it it is a fun read, and I'm really sad to see Mark Miller leaving it because his run has been fantastic yeah I agree
3: uh, I, 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 unstable I, molecules there's a book I really liked <laughs> 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 I uh
0: yeah I, I, that's the only thing about uh, Mark Miller that uh, it's kind of stinks is that he likes to keep his runs relatively short Mm-hmm. and uh maybe that's what keeps him good too i mean he you know I agree with you the, the I haven't read the regular fantastic Four other than you know uh, an issue here an issue there to see if it's gotten any better for for years but uh but I read the ultimate fantastic mm-hmm. four uh and enjoy it very much. What's the longest run that miller has been on authority uh that wasn't terribly long um God, I, I mean, I don't think he's done more... I mean, probably the Ultimates being two years. Yeah,
1: yeah. But that... Two years, but what, four, 14 issues? 16... What what number are they on in volume two?
0: Um, seven or something like that, I think. Okay, so uh, he put
1: he's together about yeah. 20 on
0: Ultimates. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't know offhand... Um, what his longest, but he 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 has said himself that he doesn't like to stay on titles very long because he he doesn't th- he thinks you get burnout and or he gets burn burnout and he'd rather move on to something else and and do something fresh. Now, Rick, I know
1: that you're you know obviously a big Spider-Man fan. Like he said, did you read Miller's run on uh, was it uh, Marvel Night Spider-Man? Mhm. How do you like that?
3: It's all, all right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well,
0: no check from Mark Miller this week. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> You're killing us.
1: No, guess, uh, no we, uh, we, we, uh, Sal and I both agree with you that I, I like the run, and I think that he did also until the last issue. And I, I think it went out with a, um, not with a bang, it went
3: out with just a murmur. Yeah, I, I'm not going to, I didn't hate it. And, I mean, I, I say that about probably 90% of what I read because, I've been reading for so long that it's really, really difficult to really get me excited. I mean, it happens once in a blue moon, but you've got to remember I've been reading since the late 60s. God, you're old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who let the old dude in? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, what was the last comic that really got you excited?
3: The Ultimates. Okay. Um, It was just a nice, fresh take. It was nice seeing a Black Nick Fury, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sam Jackson. Yeah. It was just a a departure. I I liked the concept. I liked the ultimate universe as a whole. And, uh, you know, it was just... It was fun. It it kind of brought the fun back to, to comics again. Because for a while... I mean, if you if you look at comics in the long term, you know you go through these phases, and this whole, you know, Watchmen, Dark Knight just brought this this darkness to to comics as a whole, which you know was kind of fun in the beginning, but I I just got tired of it after ten years, fifteen years. Now I want I want the fun to be back, and I want it mainly for my boys. I want them to pick up a book and just really enjoy, like a book like The Thing, Dan Slott's The mm-hmm. Thing. That's the type, or She Hulk. I'm looking for that fun. I'm I'm getting older now, and I want to regress.
0: Well, <laughs> unfortunately for, for both you and Dan Slot, you know, it seems like nobody's buying the thing. I know that was something that came out. He, he actually was uh, went on a message board or something and, and was asking people to, to please, you know, have their their LCSs request the thing and, and order it because the their order the numbers are very low for that. I don't know if people are waiting for trades or whatever, but, you know, that book is, is close to being canceled because it's not being bought. And I mean, does
3: anybody remember the, the Hercules miniseries? Yeah, the oh, yeah. Mini-series? Yeah, it was good. It was just fun. And I, I'm not talking about an overall shift in the industry to more light, dumbed-down stories. I just want a, a breath of fresh air every now and then. Well, some variety. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, the industry as a whole, right now, it is there is so much variety, and it's so prolific. It hasn't been like this in a long, long time. I think the the industry is really starting to break open. Uh, back when I started collecting, you had superheroes, yes, but you also had your horror books. You had westerns. You had, and I hate to admit this, but I have a huge romance collection. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> but you had that kind of variety. And then it all just kind of dried up went away, and it was superheroes for a good 20 years, and now we're starting to branch out a little more. I read uh, Strangers in Paradise.
2: Okay. Were those uh, romance it, books the ones you were looking for when your son was going through the stack <laughs> of books? <laughs> 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 he had a hole
0: to fill in his collection.
2: Drop that Millie the nurse! <laughs>
1: <laughs> my, my perception of Rick is blown. Maxim, glory buying
3: romance comics. I'm done. I'm out. Hey, just picture me <laughs> in a wife beater, a big cigar, and, uh, and a copy of, you know, Young Romance, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: um, I agree with you, though. I think, you know, right now there's so much talent, and you see slightly, you know, especially in, in, in the indie world or the, you know, non-mainstream world, there's, you know, there's so much variation. But even, you know, mainstream... You're seeing on the edges, you know, some changes being made and, and them trying to do, you know, I think DC maybe more so. I mean, you, what they're doing with one year later and all that, yet to be seen, but it looks like they may be, you know, changing, you know, company wide. But mm-hmm. you do have so many talented people uh, in the industry now, and, and, you know, we talked about this before, is that I'd hate to see a, all of them doing the same thing. And right. and I and I hope that you know they let these creative and talented people do different things with these characters and and really uh, you know because it, it it did bring it you know like you said with Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns I mean that you know was 15 years of darkness sort of started from there and it was it was that syndrome of well one thing is successful everyone copies it and yeah and
3: let's have you know four different you know Punisher titles let's have Ghost Rider let's let's. Mm-hmm darken it to the point where you know people just didn't want to be in that universe. Yeah
0: and and, and hopefully we can learn from our mistakes.
3: Well I know that it's
0: a
1: business and Marvel I'm sure that they have a cutoff point whenever circulation drops below a certain number that book's in danger but I hope that they look beyond the basic numbers with a book like Thing or Marvel Mm -hmm. Team Up and sees what it has to offer to a different segment of readers than what maybe their core readership is and to say have a 15, 16 year old or a 33 year old like me that enjoys reading The Thing and says you know what we may take a hit on it But it's still important, it's still a quality book, and even if we're going to lose a little money on it, we need to keep a book like this out there because it opens up the world of comics to a lot of different people that may not want to
3: read Punisher Max. It's all about marketing at this point, the content is there, the variety is out there, but getting it to the masses is almost, it's next to impossible nowadays. Well, it's a lot of competition. Yeah, and it's, and we we've, we've talked about marketing and
1: before, and I, I think the key is that they have to stop marketing against each other, and and that's that's what I constantly see, and I know that Tom feels that way also. It's, you know what
3: I saw at an antique store last weekend? A, a spit a spin rack. <laughs>
2: nice.
3: I haven't seen one. And God knows how long I, I almost bought the thing, but it wasn't an actual spinner. Mm-hmm. it was just one of those fixed racks but i it would look perfect in a spider man room but i I just think about it. It's like my sons have never seen a spin rack; they probably never will see one i I wish they would I wish they would be able to go down to the local you know, mobile on the run and see a spin rack and pick up some books there. Yeah, I but saw I, a I spin know rack. know those days are long gone.
1: Well, I saw a spin rack a couple of weeks ago, but it was, like, in a Borders. Right. I haven't seen one in a, in a convenience store. No, well, those don't mars. count. Yeah. You know, <laughs> They're but too posh looking. <laughs> it, exactly what you're talking about, and I don't think that we're ever going to see them back in the convenience marts. So um, let's move on to uh, uh, the story about Peter David uh, writing the Dark Tower series. This uh, this series has been talked about for, God, I don't know, a couple of years now at least. About uh, Stephen King optioning this to Marvel. Uh, Sal, I, ha- have you read the Dark Tower?
0: Yeah, I, I have. Um, I don't think I ever finished it. I, I used to be a very big Stephen King fan. I have a uh, leather uh, edition of of about 20 20 or 25 of his novels, um, and I've read just about all of his stuff. Um, I think his writing is going to be difficult to sort of emulate or put into a comic book um, because of the depth of it and the characters that he creates and how much he puts into those characters, which I think is what... You know, I enjoy of his writing. You know, is mm-hmm. is is the what he does with his characters and and who he creates in his books. Um, I think that's going to be hard to do in a comic book. Uh, you know, his stuff is so dense. A lot of the times, I you know, it'd be interesting to see how that comes out um, in a comic. But Peter David's a you know a, a very good writer um, in his own right, so it, it should be. It's going to be a challenge, I think, but we'll see.
1: Yeah, I I love the Dark Tower series. I've got the the whole thing on audio CD. That's what I used to do before podcasts came around. I'd listen to audiobooks in my car, so... um it was I so I didn't read it, but I listened to the whole series, and all of his stuff is unabridged. So I think I got the the same experience. I, I think it's the type of story that can translate to a comic really well, and I think Peter David can handle it. Um, Rick, have you read Dark Tower?
3: Let me just throw this in right right off the rip. I am not a Stephen King fan, mm-hmm. so so we're not Peter getting a David check from him. Be-
1: there's another no. one. Thanks,
3: Rick. <laughs> is Mark Peter came David off being on left? this? <laughs> I'm the official curmudgeon. Great. <laughs> right. Is um is is Peter David going to be enough to bring me in on this if I'm not a huge fan? I mean, I'm not not to say I don't hate Stephen King, mm-hmm. but I just don't get it. I don't see what the big deal is. I'm more of a Clive Barker fan.
1: Do you like westerns? <sighs> yeah.
3: Do you like romance westerns? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hey, who doesn't like a good romance? Yeah. <laughs> or just romance?
0: Because I think they're the they're going to do Brokeback Mountain, the the graphic novel, oh, soon.
3: Good, oh, gray. They're going
0: to give that one away on
3: free comics. <laughs> K- is is, K- is Jake going to write it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <La-suit.
1: laughs> oh. Well, we'll we'll see. Once again, I'll I'll probably pick up the Dark Tower comic and let everyone know what I think about it, as if that would matter, and then I'll give it to Sal, and he'll get a free read at it. So. <laughs> well, when do you think I hang out <laughs> with you?
3: Well, my fiancé likes Stephen King, and she has friends who love Stephen King. Do you think this would be a, a, a nice gateway book for them, to bring them into the uh, comics fold?
1: Maybe, but that never seems to work. You know, I... It, I I will hand out comic books to people that you know may like you know something, and if it gets adapted to a comic book, I think you know we've hit on it already that the licenses for comic books they have a tendency of being done really poorly, and mm-hmm. so I think it's all about the quality. You know, you know, Peter David, honestly, I love some of his stuff. Some of his other stuff is okay. I think it depends on how it does. Mm-hmm you know, it's you know, it's like you know Harry Potter, you know, comics. You know that'll never happen, but you know, it, would that be a great gateway comic? I think so. If We can just get rolling to, you know, get off her high horse and license that out. So I'll you tell you, have you have what, the quality behind. may be
3: horrible, but that book would sell. Oh yeah, yeah. Have, have get, to wait line behind a bunch of weirdos. <laughs>
2: You see your books. <laughs> crazy people
1: dressed up in, in wizard outfits and yeah, whatnot. Even, <laughs> even
2: weirder and geekier. Yeah, than me. yeah,
1: yeah, Then we could actually see a wizard take on the Hulk at the uh, at the local comic shop. I just <laughs> want to get my
2: superhero comics. You wizard, get out of my way!
1: <laughs> you know, the funny thing is,
0: I could see some of Stephen King's stuff done in in like manga. You know, if you took like It and turned that into a manga. Uh, well, I think it, it's a perfect one, yeah, you know, wow. uh, some of his stuff I think would translate better to that almost, but once again, I just like i said, I just think it's gonna be difficult, I don't know if I'm the only one but but to me, what I you know, and i don't I haven't read Stephen King's stuff in a while, but when I did read a lot of it i I thought his character development was what made him uh, you know special, and to try and do that in a comic is gonna be n- impossible, I think. To to replicate that, and I don't know. It's going to be, you know, it will be interesting.
1: Well, we'll 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 report on it whenever it comes out. Even though I got a feeling that's like I said, they've they've been talking about this for two years at least. So if it comes out in two thousand seven, I will be very surprised. So um, we'll we'll see when that comes out. Uh, Maybe it'll be a top of the stack. Which uh, speaking of, I believe it is time for top of the stack top top of the
3: stack,
1: the stack, the stack that's right it's top of the stack it is our chance to let you the listener know what we have been reading in the last week uh sal what is your top of the stack this week
0: Uh, My top of the stack is Zombie Tales The Dead, number one from Boom Studios. Uh, This is a a collaboration of a bunch of artists and writers put out by uh, the newly formed Boom Studios who've who've done a a great job of getting their name out there and have put out some really quality books over the last year. Uh, Zombie Tales the, The Dead, number one, is a collection of Oh, it looks like about six stories about zombies, um, and you know, there's been a ton of zombie stuff out there. Uh, I'm a I'm a huge zombie movie fan, and I read most zombie books and 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 get into it. And what what I liked about this particular book was um, one the different, take they took, uh, the different take they took, the different take they took, the different take they had on these stories. They were they centered more around um, from the zombies. Uh, point of view, or from maybe ancillary characters uh, around these zombies, and how uh, it affected them, and and all of these stories are completely different. Uh, there's nothing linking them from one to the next, uh, even you know timelines and locations. Nothing. They're, they're completely different. You know, separate stories. Uh, the artwork is consistently pretty darn good. Um, and a lot of times with collections, you're sort of, you know, you, you, you're hit or miss. You know, maybe one or two stories would be good. The rest of them are kind of so-so. But in the two books that I've gotten from Boom Studios, I think they've done a, a fairly good job of trying to, to keep the quality of all the stories uh, on the same, you know, pretty high level. So if you like zombies... Um, you know this is you know this is nothing groundbreaking. It's it, it, but it's it's good stuff. It's fun, morbid, dark, uh, funny in some instances, and even sad. So uh, if you're into zombie stories, I would suggest picking it up. Was there any farm animal sodomy? <clears throat> uh, there was no farm animal sodomy, but there were a group of animals breaking out of a zoo. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. There's potential.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: Mr. Gordon, what is uh, the Birthday Boys top of the stack? Right now, I am reading First Family. Uh, uh, issue one of six, it looks like. Yet another retelling of the origin of Fantastic Four, but I just love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, Joe Casey writing Chris Weston pencils, Gary Erskine inks. I love this book. I, I, can't, I can't even describe to you the joy. It was, like I discussed before, it is a fun book. Well, are they are they uh, fighting the Russians, or is it an updated telling of it? It, it looks like it's a, just an updated telling, just a different angle. They came at it from a different slant. Um, I don't know where... It's six issues. I don't know how they're pacing it, but right now... I'm just thumbing through it right now as we look. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Well, you I from, uh, we, we talked about Ultimate Fantastic
1: Four. If they pace it like that, it'll be issue four before they get their <laughs> superpowers. So,
3: <Yeah.
0: laughs> hey, uh, have you read? Uh, do you read Planetary by chance?
3: No, unfortunately, I don't. You, oh, well, it's God, a great it's book, time. but
0: but the, the the most recent arc, um, which is sort of a uh, enlightenment of the. The big bad guys, basically, in the universe that Warren Ellis has created in that book. Um, if you're if you're looking for an interesting take on the Fantastic Four, you might want to check it out. It's it's um, Ellis working with those you know uh, characters to some degree.
3: Speaking of Ellis, I've also have Ultimate Extinction. Um, I get my books from DCBS, and I get them monthly. So. I don't know how current this is, but I'm really digging Ultimate Extinction. You see, it, it all goes back to me being an old fogey and not being excited about what's coming out. So I really enjoy when they just take the old and try to make it new again. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's always interesting to read.
0: Yeah, I've been I've been enjoying that book also.
1: Yeah, that was one of Sal's top of the stacks. We've uh, we I we've both been enjoying Ultimate Extinction. Uh, Mr. Caters, what is your top of the stack this week?
2: Uh, I've been very busy lately, so I haven't read that much. But uh, one book I did read that I really enjoyed is actually the one-year-later issue of Team Titan, which I really enjoyed. I mean, I, I don't know how much I can get into it, but it was much more fun than it was before You know, the one-year leap. It was sort of jokey. Um, there you know, the Wonder Twins kind of make an appearance in it, which is kind of a funny thing to have brought back from Super Friends, but... Does one of them (laughs) turn into
1: a bucket of water? No, no power. Okay.
2: Sort of, it's just, it's just fun. It's just a fun book to read, so if you're looking for that, uh, if you're looking for a respite from sort of the darkness that's going on, don't read Outsiders, but read Teen Titans, (laughs) so...
1: Nice. We'll, we'll give Tom a pass. For anyone who doesn't know, Tom is an accountant, and he's working like you know 120 hours a week right now. So he, he runs into uh, my apartment tonight and goes, "Dude, I haven't read anything this week."
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Should I do Exterminators?" I already did Exterminators once, and I was like, "Oh, an American Way." So we already did American Way. I think it might have been me. No, think about it. <laughs> So can we
3: all agree that there's just not as much fun in comics as there used to be? I think you have to look for it a little bit more. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I did the thing already, too. I was
0: like, huh. Oh, well. I don't know. I have a sixth sense of humor, so I find, yeah. you know, fun yeah. everywhere.
1: The uh, w- Once again, we talked about Exterminators and this last issue. Once again, I felt guilty for liking that book so <laughs> much. Uh, did yeah. you guys read that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, just the scene under the couch. Oh, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> <laughs> don't spoil it for me i haven't read it yet i uh, i haven't God. i haven't read it just, yet just the line i'm not retrieving that rat trap <laughs>
0: hey hey come on spoilers <laughs> i thought this was a no spoiler show <laughs> oh
1: it, it's you'll enjoy it all right guys my uh my top of the stack is Moon Knight number one? It is written by Charlie Houston and penciled by David Finch. Is, uh, the most pitched character at Marvel has made his long awaited return to the comic book shelves. Moon Knight is back and he is not happy. Uh, the first story arc is called The Bottom and uh, it begins the new series, which has already been moved from a six issue miniseries to an ongoing. Uh, In an age where readers cruise through comics in a race to read as much as possible, Charlie Houston and David Finch have created a story that just screams for you to slow down and let yourself fall into the world of Moon Knight. Now, Finch's art alone is reason enough to pick this up. It's drawn with a dark intensity that passes my test of telling a story with sequential art. His storytelling is superb in this. Now, small things like personalized license plates and store names, uh, there's this dream sequence that just show you why Finch is one of the best in the business right now. Uh, Charlie Houston has taken his gritty crime noir fiction. He is a novelist and he has transitioned into the world of comics without missing a beat. Now, you have to judge his writing on this one um, on his narrative because there is absolutely no dialogue in this first issue. It is all Finch's art and uh, narration which goes over the story. Uh, Houston has opened up a window in, in the splintered mind of Mark Specter, and as a reader you can either choose to cringe, turn away, or pity uh, Moon Knight. Um, action abounds in this issue, and there are a lot of deeper plot lines that, once again slow down, enjoy this issue because there's not a lot of dialogue you'll kind of feel like you need to just rip through it look at the pictures real quick and go oh my god, nothing happened but if you let yourself get into this story, there's a lot going on. Now, uh, the the return of Moon Knight has been long awaited, and uh, Finch and Houston are off to a nice start. It's going to be hard for them to uh, keep this from being Marvel's B-list version of Batman, which is what I always thought Moon Knight was in a lot of ways. He was basically, take Batman, put him in a white outfit, and a lot of the stories can seem the same, but um, they're off to a great start. I think this has a chance of being a very good ongoing series so Moon Knight is my top of the stack and uh, since Charlie Houston is a newcomer to the world of comics you can find out more about him at his official website which is www.pulpnoir.com and guys that is top of the stack for this week Um, Sal do you have uh, any announcements
0: No, um, I did want to say in regards to Moon Knight, I did read that also, uh, but I had a, I have a friend of mine who uh, used to read comics. We both did when we were kids, and was a huge Moon Knight fan. Probably hasn't read a comic book in. 15 years or longer, and I told him Moon Knight was coming back out with a, with a new uh, series, and, and he, he made me pick him up on uh, a copy of the first issue to, to check out, and he was very excited to, to hear that Moon Knight was coming back, because it was one of his favorites, so I just thought that was an interesting side note.
1: Oh, nice. No, you know, I, I liked it. Uh, uh, Rick or Tom, have you picked it up yet? Rick, Tom hasn't read anything this week, but... <laughs>
2: Um, no, I probably won't pick it up either. Oh, oh it's... <laughs> at some
1: point, sorry. Yeah, and, and to Kev on uh, on the Comic Geek Speak show, I'm sorry, dude. His outfit is white in this. They, they say it like three times. <laughs> <It's not> sil- <laughs> <laughs> so poor, no way is this still. Yeah, poor, poor Kev. We'll have to wait for, you know, clarification on Ultimate Moon Knight because I haven't said it that one. No,
0: and I will say also, I think it might have been Tom that was sort of making fun of the dialogue in the preview pages that came out. Every week for the last month for this book. Yeah, it
2: started of freaked me out a little
0: bit. Well, once you read the story, I think it 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 actually makes more sense what he's saying, and and it's Houston. I think wrote it that way not for the effect that you may have gotten from seeing the preview pages, but for the effect of of what is going on in Mark Spector's life and mind at the moment. So, I, I, to me, because when you said that initially, I, I kind of agreed. It was like, well, it is kind of strange and, and kind of cheesy sounding and, you know, everything. But then I read the issue, and, and at the end of it, I was like, well, that seemed to make more sense as, as far as why he would be saying things like that.
1: Yeah, it, it, it worked. And, you know, was it a, was it a perfect comic? No, but I, I liked it a lot. Well, then it
0: doesn't deserve to be on top of the
2: stack. It must be perfect in every way.
1: Hey, I do want to give a couple shout-outs here to uh, some of our our, uh, fellow podcasters. Uh, First of all, one of our guests today, Rick Gordon, is the host of the Pop Cult Online podcast. Rick, can you give us a a rundown of what uh, the
3: Pop Cult Online is? Uh, Just basically a podcast and website devoted to the 10-year-old and all of us, and I just you know, discuss things that a ten-year-old would, but not in a creepy way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you guys focus a lot on Bronze Age, uh, even some Silver Age stuff. And we're trying you know, to, we're getting yeah, there. Yeah, the the big oversized GI Joe toys
3: and Pop Tarts. Uh, those Joes were not oversized; they were the correct size. That's
0: right, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Damn!
3: Snap! <laughs>
1: you youngsters just don't know. <laughs> Well, I've listened to uh, the first uh, episode that uh, you did with David Price, and it was funny. There was a thread on the forum that came up that David Price is everywhere. He was on, like, four podcasts in the last week, so he's making the rounds. He's turning into the little podcast for that, David.
3: Yes, he is. Yes, he is. (laughs) And just a reminder, the second episode went up today. Nice. So we've got got another episode up there. I'm actually interviewing my sons that I uh, talk about all the time, so nice
1: another podcast out there I had a really nice conversation with Chris Marshall over at Collected Comics Library if you are a reader of trades or uh, masterwork editions any of the Collected Comics his podcast is a must he updates you on everything that's coming out gives you great reviews tips on buy-in Uh, Chris has a great comic mind for the industry and what's going on and is just sincerely a very, very nice guy, even though he lives in Detroit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but uh, check, please check out The uh, the com- uh, Collected Comics Library With Chris Marshall And always a shout out To our friend uh, Bruce R At Comics Cast uh, He continues to Yeah, Bruce He's, He is <laughs> the best And uh, and then our uh, our friends Over at Comic Geek Speak Which if you're listening to this Chances are you've heard them And uh, we want to thank them For uh, hosting our forum If you'd like to Chirp in on any of the Discussions from today Or just comics in general please visit us at our forum you can go to aroundcomics.com click forum or you can go to comicgeekspeak.com and access the forum there Uh, Please email us with any of your questions, comments, topic ideas, etc. I did want to mention, this is uh, not our our NPR uh, begging time of the month, but uh, I did notice that that Sal has a donate button on the website, so if you want to throw a buck or two our way, we will always appreciate that. And uh, one last footnote I had was uh, start planning for Wizard World Chicago for any of the out-of-towners. Uh, Wizard World is going to be, I believe, August 3rd, 4th, and 5th here in Chicago. Let us know if you're planning on attending. We are definitely going to be there and recording shows on site. So let us know if you plan on attending. And uh, Sal, if you don't have anything else, I think that, uh, that does it for me.
0: I think that's it.
1: Another show right. in the can. You got it. Everyone have a wonderful week. We will see you again next Monday.
0: If you would like to suggest a topic, send us your comments, or are interested in becoming a panel member, email us at info at aroundcomics.com, or visit the Contact Us section of our website. For that and the latest in comics news and opinions, go to www.aroundcomics.com. Music for this show provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network, music.podshow.com. Thank you for listening today, and remember to join us next week, where the panel will change, but our mission stays the same, bringing you the best in discussion, news, and reviews, in and around comics.